I was sitting at the table having tea with a couple when the dear wife said something that made me sputter in my cup. Um, She said, and I quote, I don't have to forgive that man who raped me. Anyone who does something that cruel cannot be forgiven. If you were sitting in my chair, what would you have said? I know, I, I know that God commands us to forgive all just as he has forgiven us. But, but think about how to express that to someone who is in so much pain. Or what would, think about this. What would you say to the people who have lost family to the evils engineered by, by people like Osama bin Laden and ISIS? How, how should they respond to such cruel, wicked men? Or, or how about people who have been wounded by their own government? That's happened in many, many places around the world through the years, including in this country. What about those who have been abused by family members? Or or maybe the most difficult of all, what do you say to somebody who's traumatized by false accusations? What do you say when human beings face terrible pain at the hand of completely wretched and wicked people? The answer is found in God's history book, the one we call 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles 33 shows us a thoroughly terrible person, the king Manasseh. Now, here's the deal. If we'll look at what God does with this character, we will learn how to respond to the oppressors in our own lives. Now, I need to warn you, this will get very dark. But if we'll stay with the text, we will learn how to respond to evil. Open your Bible to 2 Chronicles chapter 33. 2 Chronicles 33, let's read verses 1 through 9. Come on in. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king and reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the Lord's sight, imitating the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had dispossessed before the Israelites. He rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had torn down. High places were places of completely illegitimate, idolatrous worship. They were used, they're called that because they were usually, though not always, on high spots in the, in the hills. Uh, He reestablished the altars for the Baals. He made Asherah poles. Those are are horribly grotesque uh, things that were used in a ritualized sex kind of worship. It's disgusting. Um, And he worshiped the whole of the heavenly host and served them. He built altars in the Lord's temple where Yahweh had said, Jerusalem is where my name will remain forever. He built altars to the whole heavenly host in both courtyards of the Lord's temple. He passed his sons through the fire in the valley of Hinnom. He practiced witchcraft, divination, and sorcery, consulted mediums and spiritists. He did, a, he did a great deal of evil in the Lord's sight, provoking him. Manasseh set up a carved image of the idol he had made in God's temple. Other texts tell us that this was an Asherah pole in God's temple, about which God had said to David and his son Solomon, I will establish my name forever in this temple and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel. I will never again remove the feet of the Israelites from the land where I stationed their ancestors, if only they will be careful to do all I have commanded to them through Moses, all the laws, statutes, and judgments. So Manasseh caused Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to stray so, so they did worse evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. Stop there. For those of you who are just joining us, we've been learning from the kings of Judah. We've been sitting humbly at their feet to see how we might grow up better. Today we're going to grow by learning from King Manasseh. As we summarize in your notes, look inside your bulletin you got when you came in in the notes on the left-hand side. You'll see Manasseh is defiant. His cruelty begins with defiance. Verses 1 through 5 show us a man who is insolent towards God. Manasseh comes to power and he just raises his fist up in the air and he just shakes it at Yahweh, not caring a whit 
for what the Lord Almighty says is right. Maybe you've seen this. There have been a few times in my life when I have been horrified to see a new leader take power. And sometimes that new boss takes control and very quickly just entirely ruins an organization. In those first few days, that new boss undoes everything good and godly that his predecessor had done. That's what Manasseh does. How are citizens supposed to respond to that kind of leadership evil? Now, it's not just in government. You know this, right? Every one of us lives in relationships with people who are defiant towards God. How do you handle such people? Now, as we get to God's answer, let's first discuss four types of fist shakers, okay? There are four types of fist shakers that litter our relationships. You'll see these listed in our notes. First is the rationalizer. This is a person who actually looks at you and says, well, I didn't, I didn't really sin. I, it, it wasn't my fault. I didn't really sin against you or the Lord. It was, and here you fill in the blank, it was my parents' fault. It was society's fault. Uh, it was my hormones. It, it was uh, my boss, the Russians, whatever. Anything besides my responsibility, right? What's that? You resemble that remark? I have as well. And I will tell you that it is awful when we rationalize. Such shifty defiance towards God's word is idiotic. And you know what it does? It hurts everybody around us when we rationalize. These days, we especially see rationalization. I see rationalization most often in these circumstances uh, when somebody is giving a lack of effort or doing sketchy business practices or trying to justify divorce. Justifying hatred is a popular one. Pride, law-breaking. These are our most popular forms of rationalization. I was talking with a seminary friend about why we do this. He and I were talking about why we do this kind of fist shaking. And he wrote me a brilliant note. Look what he wrote. He said, he said, Wayne, why do rationalizers rationalize? Perhaps because, and he listed five things, we love our sin more than God. Number two, we convince ourselves that our sin is of no consequence. That one's pretty popular. We need to justify the conflict between our fleshly desires and obedience. Uh, we're selfish, and thus we trade God's wisdom for our own. And then here's the one I think is the most popular today. We are more concerned about other people's sins. Much more concerned about others' sins. Speaking of others, another type, second type of defiant person is the reflector. Now, this person is being convicted by the Holy Spirit about sin, but here's what he does. He, he conveniently puts up mirrors outside of his own soul. All right, follow me here. He, he reflects all conviction from the Scripture off of self and onto those people who are around him. This person actually seems wise because he understands what God says about sin, but it's never applied in his own life. It's only reflected onto the lives of those people around him. It can be very painful, by the way, to be around these reflectors. Students are notorious for this kind of behavior. But because students think they have learned something, they excuse themselves from any personal application, and they can only see the flaws in other people. Uh, college students are especially bad about this. Teachers can be just as bad, uh, especially Bible teachers who only apply the Scripture to other people. Um, here's what my wise friend said about reflectors. He wrote me, we were talking about all four of these, and he said, why do reflectors reflect? Lack of faith, love for our own sin, pride, and then the one I think that is the most popular, to mask our sin. If I can make everybody else's sins magnified, I don't ever have to deal with mine. Thirdly, defiance is seen in the rejectors. Now, these people just flat out reject the Lord Jesus. You almost surely are related in some way to such a person. They, they refuse to look at the facts that prove they need a Savior. They refuse to receive the free gift of eternal life in Jesus. How many of you, how many of you care about a person who rejects Jesus? Let's do this. If you, if you love someone who refuses to love Jesus, raise your hand. Raise your hand. Okay. All right. Almost everybody. Hands down. How does their defiance affect you? Doesn't it hurt? It hurts. Here's what my friend added. He said, why do rejectors reject? And by the way, he's only looking at this from a human point of view. I know. 
I know Scripture has an antinomy here where it's also God's complete sovereign choice and will, but let's leave that for just a moment and look at why, from a human point of view, rejectors reject arrogance, willful lack of knowledge, I, don't know, I can't hear anything, you can't handle the truth, um, to continue in sin, uh, that one's very popular, I hear that one a lot, and, uh, and the lack of caring Christians in their lives. Fourth type of defiance toward God is remaking. The remakers will adapt or adjust their belief about God's will to suit their own desires, right? Whenever we want something, what we do is we, we change the Scripture. We come up with a new trajectory for Scripture so it will fit our wish. Uh, here's how my friend wrote about this very popular group. He said, Wayne, a Jewish friend once quipped to me, God made man in his own image, and ever since, man has been trying to return the favor. My point in exposing these types of defiance is to convince you and me of a very important truth. We all tend towards such defiance, all of us. One or more of these, rationalize a reflector, reject a remaker, one or more of these applies to every one of us and far too often. And that means, dear friends, that you and I are only a breath away from the same kind of cruelty seen in King Manasseh. His story can very easily be ours. And like Manasseh, our defiance can be deadly to the family. Look at verse 6, the first of verse 6. He passed his sons through the fire in the valley of Hinnom. This is the valley of Ben-Hinnom. It was Jerusalem's garbage dump. The, the, the trash of Jerusalem for centuries was tossed out there and burned. There was a continual fire going there. It was such a horrible and graphic place of burning that when God wanted to describe the very real spiritual place where people who reject Jesus spend eternity, he called it in Greek Gehenna. Gehenna is a Greek form of Hinnom. We translate it in English, hell. That's what it's like being related to a cruel person. It is hell. Manasseh takes his own son's and he calls them trash. He throws his boys out into Hinnom. By the way, this is where the ancient child sacrifices to the satanic god Molech used to take place. And Manasseh kills his own sons like the ancient pagans. In fact, he outdoes the Molech worshippers of old. Did you know this? The Molech worshippers, they only killed one of their sons. They killed one child. Manasseh, Manasseh kills multiple children, possibly to ensure his own throne. The Australian polymath, Dr. John Thompson, genius, he, he had this to say. This is really brilliant. He said, if Manasseh had searched the scriptures for practices that would most anger the Lord and then intentionally committed them, he could not have achieved that result any more effectively than he did. The high places that Hezekiah had destroyed were rebuilt. The altars for Baal, the poles for Asherah were re-erected. He also reestablished astral worship, the practice of sacrificing sons in the fire Sorcery, divination, witchcraft, consulting of mediums and spiritists, which is necromancy, dealing in familiar spirits. The rite of child sacrifice, by the way, was evidently a form of divination, kind of like augury. He finishes, all in all, the sins of Manasseh detailed the depths to which counterfeit religion will take a person. Here was the Davidic king, the, the heir and keeper of the promises of the covenant with David, worshiping poles and stones and stars. Worse yet, he was murdering his own son's one of whom otherwise might have been heir to the throne and the covenant. Get this last sentence. Paganism, whether in its ancient or its modern manifestations, is not only an offense to God, it is a degradation to humankind. The pagan mindset is hell on the family. And the sacrifice of children to that pagan mind still happens today. You know that, right? Of course, modern people think we are much more sophisticated about it. <clears throat> Possibly you heard the recent CBS news story that tacitly applauded Iceland for eliminating Down syndrome via abortion. 
the, the tweet that they put out before the show aired was this. Iceland is on pace to virtually eliminate Down syndrome through abortion. I think Patris, uh, Patricia Heaton had the best response. Patricia Heaton said this, Iceland isn't actually eliminating Down syndrome. They're just killing everybody that has it. Big difference. Of course, familial assassinations are not only physical, are they? I am deadly to the hearts of my children when I call them names because I'm mad at them. And we assassinate our family members. We especially assassinate their character by making fun of them when they're not around. We like to do this with our in-laws, don't we? We gossip, we slander, we bully, we pigeonhole people. It is cruel and it is deadly to our family. Manasseh is cruel. He is defiant towards God and he is deadly to his family. He's also incredibly destructive to his company, to his country. Uh, Second Kings tells us that because of Manasseh's idolatry in the temple, no less, because of that, Judah is going to go into captivity. This is the worst pronouncement ever made against Judah so far in the nation's history. A leader like this takes his country to rock bottom. Defiance towards God destroys countries, which is why many of us are so concerned for India today. In case you don't know, the current government in India has made it clear that they have a desire to eradicate Christianity in the great nation within the next three years. Their latest trick, oh, this is slimy. Their latest trick is to, uh, just to arrest the leaders of any ministry that works with children. Here's what they do. They falsely claim that these Christian leaders are practicing sex trafficking. Yeah, because that, because that gets a lot of press, right? It's false, but they, but they do it. Health services, water well construction, English lessons, VBS, anything provided by Christians is attacked. What happens is by the time the Christians get through court and finally are cleared, and they're always cleared, they've lost their ministry and quite often their livelihood. According to most economists, India's poverty level has worsened over the past few years as all the Christian relief work is being drummed out of the country and tens of thousands of children are losing meals and schooling and health care and yet the leaders of that country don't care about the human devastation as long as they can defy what they see as the absurdity of one God. Now closer to home, where I live in America, it is very fashionable to discuss the evils of our age and the need for reform. And usually, that kind of discussion evolves into a cry for more laws. But I want you to listen carefully. All the laws in the world won't really help until we stop being defiant towards God and destructive toward each other. Stronger moral laws are not the answer. Think, you cannot get stronger moral laws than existed under Stalin in the Soviet Union. You, you cannot get stronger moral legality than the covenant of God that Manasseh violated. Obviously, laws are not the answer. The answer is a change of heart. And that's where you Christians come in. That's where we get to the big issue of where this biblical text meets our lives. How can one live with cruel people who cause us pain? The answer is that we become change agents who understand and embrace God's response. The next section of Manasseh's life reveals God's response. Here's his response to Manasseh's cruelty. Read verses 10 and 11. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they didn't listen. So he brought against them the military commanders of the king of Assyria. They captured Manasseh with hooks, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon. As we headline on the right side of our notes, Manasseh is captured. Manasseh is captured. Two huge issues here. Principled initiation. All right? 
You see, principled initiation. Look at verse 10. The victim, Yahweh. The victim, Yahweh, makes the first move at reconciliation. God is the one being defied and wounded, and yet he is the one reaching out. Jesus, God the Son, dealt with this issue of principled initiation in his, in his great thesis teaching that we call the Sermon on the Mount. Um, Jesus and his followers, he said, should be people who initiate reconciliation. Very clearly, Jesus commanded. Remember what he said? If you're presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come present your offering. Even the worship of God should take place in the context of initiated reconciliation. First, be reconciled to your brother, then make your offering to God. How do we handle horrible people? We initiate reconciliation as God commands and as God does. However, listen, listen very carefully. That is not to suggest that we foolishly water down Scripture. Listen, later in that same sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this, chapter 7, verse 6, Do not give what is holy to dogs. Do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under feet and turn and tear you to pieces. This is singular wisdom. You see, often when we initiate reconciliation, we fall prey to the lunacy of changing God's clear values. Here's what we do. Because somebody is angry or hurt or scared, we will warp God's truth just so that they feel better, and we wrongfully call this reconciliation. It's not. It's merely facilitating sin. It might make us feel better. It might make us look more holy to the culture, but all we've done is trample under feet the pearls of God's word, and it will inevitably lead to our own destruction. A number of years ago, I was teaching through the, the combination thoughts in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, passages like this that expose both sides of a, of a biblical ethic. And an acclaimed artist, a friend of mine, was painting as I taught. This was the result. Here's what he painted. He painted Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount addressing his followers, right? Now, this is brilliant. Look what he did. He picked up on this, this wonderful combination thought. So in this hand over here on the left, what is Jesus doing? He's holding up two fingers. You probably don't know if you didn't, unless you grew up in Russia, you probably don't know. This is the Eastern blessing. Very, very popular in the early years of Christianity. Jesus probably didn't use it, but it's a beautiful symbol. Uh, the two fingers are to illustrate the, the reconciliation of God and man in Jesus, who is fully God and fully man. This is a blessing. You see, he's reaching out with a blessing. But what's he doing with the other hand? What's he doing with the other hand? What's it? It's palm out. Isn't that cool? It's a refusal to water down God's word just because somebody's feelings are hurt. It's a refusal to call wrong right or right wrong. It's principled initiation. Isn't that great? Just genius. Let that combination be seen in us. So, for example, suppose you have some relative who is a racist, okay, of whatever variety or color. It is probably personal pain that has led that person to that unbiblical point of view. You know because they spew, right? They spew the pain they feel. They express vitriol that you won't bow down to their false god, which is always set up by racists. In fact, they, they get angry that you say nice things on Facebook about whatever group they assume is oppressing them. What can you do with such a person? Initiate with them. Re reach out with an understanding hand of blessing and grace. Feel their pain. Sure, Sure, they embarrass you, just as God was embarrassed by Manasseh, but reach out in love anyway. However, however, if they twist your care into supposed support for their lunacy, make it clear that you are not about casting God's pearls in that pigsty. When they want you to break laws or they want you to excuse abuse or anything contrary to the Bible, you just say, I love you, but that's wrong, and I am no part of that. 
God is a God of principled initiation. He seeks the offender, but he's also a God of consequence. Wrong is not called right. When Manasseh sins and won't listen to God's truth, what happens? Look, he's hauled away by the working of the very God who sought to relate to him. Very rarely do we imitate both of these traits. Just look at our parenting. Okay, think about our parenting for a moment. If we do imitate God's principled initiation, then, then we do begin that. We don't continue with consequences, right? The other day I was in a grocery store. The little girl in front of me in the aisle was just so pitiful. She was pointing at the candy and just whimpering. <laughs> just pointing at the candy. And so I stood back and I kind of watched what would happen. Mom was great. Mom was great. Mom stopped principled initiation. It was amazing. She initiated with the kid. She got down on the kid's level. She looked the kid in the eye and she said, what's going on? Tell me what you're thinking. And she li- a busy mom listened. It was amazing. She listened to this kid and the kid talked. It had to have been at least a minute about why she needed the candy, how much she needed the candy. It was brilliant arguments that she had. All these things, why she needed the candy. And the mom just listened and listened. And then mom, thinking it all through, said, well, thank you so much for that. But you know what? That's not best. Sweetheart, we're not buying candy today. It isn't best for you. Principled initiation at work. I loved it. I just loved it. The kid did not. Um, (laughs) She became hysterical, and she screamed, I mean, through a complete fit. And it it was very evident what she was trying to do. She was trying to get as many people as possible to look at her mom so mom would be embarrassed. So she's looking at everybody crying out in this horrible pain. She only looked at me about a millisecond because I'm certain my face showed that I would gladly have held her for mom to punish, so she looked away from me pretty quickly. <laughs> and then, I wish this were a better story. And then to my utter horror, mom gave her the candy. Oh, yeah. She said, and I quote, oh, well, if you're that upset. Sadly, I could not control my face, I'm sure. Mom noticed my shock, and she looked up at me, and with great authority, she said to me, oh, toddlers won't listen to you unless you give them what they want. I can make a very bold prediction, barring God's wonderful intervention for which I prayed in that moment. That kid is going to grow up with hooks in her nose and fetters on her arms. Oh, she may not be physically imprisoned, although that is probably likely. But she will definitely have emotional shackles. God's different. You see, because he loves people, he gives consequences. Wise parents do that. It is the only way to help restore those who are committed to what isn't good for them. God has Manasseh carried away by an Assyrian emperor, very likely this guy, Ashurbanipal, Uh, This is a serious consequence for Manasseh's sin. In in the ancient world, facial hooks uh, were humiliating. What we call hooks, uh, what they called hooks, we would probably call rings. It It was a ring through a man's nose or through his ear. It was a humiliating sign of slavery. Some of you may uh, be fine with, and that's great, you may be fine with piercings on men's faces, but as a historian, I got to tell you, every time I see it, it gives me shivers. Uh, It is almost certain that Manasseh also had his beard shaved off. All the reliefs we have from Ashurbanipal's palace in Nineveh show that the the Assyrians have full beards, very manly long beards, and the captives always have their beards shaved off. This was a complete cultural disgrace. Now, look at what follows. Verse 12. When he was in distress, he, Manasseh, sought the favor of Yahweh his God. And earnestly humbled himself before the God of his ancestors. Suddenly we discover Manasseh is contrite. I'd like to key in on this word distress for a moment. The word we translate distress is a form of a poetic Hebrew word, sarar. 
Sarar. Uh, That's your fancy word for the day that we get to learn. On the count of three, everybody say Sarar. One, two, three. Sarar. The word literally means narrows or straights. Okay, It's a claustrophobic term for being in a very tight place. It appears 70 times in the Old Testament. It always describes physical or psychological pain. Um, the, The verb form of this word is used for childbirth pains. In the Bible. So if you've ever given birth or you've given birth to a kidney stone, uh, you understand sarar, right? You understand pain through a narrows, being a bit claustrophobic. I find sarar is the perfect word to describe those horrible, wonderful times when God has loved me enough to squeeze me. You ever, uh, you ever felt trapped in a job or, uh, or confined in your marriage or your singlehood? You ever felt wrapped up in a financial straitjacket, stuck in a limited, broken body? In those moments, we should praise God. I'm not being flippant. I'm being honest. When God causes a narrowing or distress, it is always an opportunity to look at your own heart in light of God's word. And that brings the blessings of a broken spirit and a contrite heart. I speak from experience, emotionally, spiritually, and physically. Many of you know that I once spent months in the hospital with my head in a traction device. All I could do for months was lie there and think. And I praise God for that opportunity to change as a result of what I learned about myself and my cruelty. Like you, I have been deeply wounded in life. I have felt restricted by hate and hurt all around me. But I praise God for those chances to become contrite before him because my own sin is exposed. Like Manasseh, I'm able to learn contrition because of sarah, because of the distress. Distress is a blessing from God. It is to be leaned into, not fled from. That's what's behind James's bold declaration that we're going to study in a couple of weeks. Uh, James chapter 1. Read it with me. You take the underlined text. Consider it a great joy, my brothers. Whenever you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. But endurance must do its complete work so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Look at Manasseh's response to God's sarar. He prays from humility. You you know what happens when you pray in distress? God becomes real to you. Look look at the incredible pronoun. Manasseh entreated Yahweh, his God, the Lord, his God. God becomes real to you when you pray out of the depth of your need. Repentance in the Bible, do you know this? Repentance in the Bible is used far more often of Christians than of non-Christians. We Christians need to repent of our pride. We need to be contrite and we need to pray from a place of humility. Astonishingly, that's not what I hear. I hear lots of Christian leaders these days telling everyone else to repent. I hear them even telling others what to think about the specks in other people's eyes. But I hear precious little personal repentance, very little praying from a place of humility about the logs in our own eyes. Frankly, Manasseh would laugh mirthlessly at our hubris. Look at this excellent insight. This is from David Wade of our pulpit team. He said this, God's love for Manasseh amazes me, Wayne. By any human standard of justice, he should have destroyed the man. Yet, when Manasseh cried out to God in his distress, God redeemed him and restored him. It humbles me to realize God has done the same for me. God has graciously given me experiential knowledge of him through the pain and taught me to count it all joy. Therefore, when he tells me to love as he has loved, I must obey. I must continue to engage with and help those who have hurt me so much by the collateral damage created as a result of their sin, especially within my own family. All God's people said, God's response to the cruel is to reach out in communication of grace 
and in consequences. So, so what's God's response to the contrite? How will God respond to this now changed man? I'm so glad you asked. Look at verse 13. Read the next section. He, Manasseh, prayed to him, Yahweh, so he heard his petition and granted his request and brought him back to Jerusalem, to his kingdom. So Manasseh came to know that Yahweh is God. After this, he built the outer wall of the city of David from the west of Gihon, in the, that's a spring in the valley, to the entrance of the fish gate. He brought it around the Ophel, that's a tower, and he heightened it considerably. He also placed military commanders in the fortified cities of Judah. He removed the foreign gods and the idol from the Lord's temple, along with all the altars he had built on the mountain of the Lord's temple and in Jerusalem, and he threw them outside the city. He built the altar of the Lord and offered fellowship and thank offerings on it. Then he told Judah to serve Yahweh, the God of Israel. However... The people still sacrifice at the high places, but only to Yahweh their God. I trust you understand that is horrible syncretism that is completely unbiblical. Let's wrap up. The rest of the events of Manasseh's reign, along with his prayer to his God and the words of the seers who spoke to him in the name of Yahweh, the God of Israel, are written in the records of Israel's kings. His prayer and how God granted his request and all his sin and unfaithfulness and the sites where he built high places and set up Asherah poles and carved image before he humbled himself, they're written in the records of Hotzai. That's a book we don't have anymore. Manasseh rested with his fathers and was buried in his own house. His son Ammon became king in his place. Manasseh becomes a covenant child. Three R's explain what happens here. First, Manasseh is restored. God brings Manasseh back to his home, back to his throne. The Jewish historian Josephus, a few hundred years after this, he says that all the rest of Manasseh's life was so changed for the better that he, he actually was considered a very happy man. I like this quote so much I put it in your notes. Look, when he had changed his former course, he so led his life for the time to come that from the time of his return to piety towards God, he was deemed a happy man and a pattern for imitation. Close quote. God is a God of restoration. Manasseh's wickedness is washed away and now he lives in light of eternity. Those who would imitate God must believe in restoration, not in personal revenge. Legend has it that the prophet Isaiah was killed by Manasseh. The legend is that Manasseh had Isaiah stuffed into a hollow log and then sawn in two. And yet, and yet, it was Isaiah who wrote this passage that has direct reference to Manasseh. God is talking about Manasseh, Isaiah 57. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating words of what, everybody? Praise. Have you prayed for your enemies as Jesus commands? Imitate Isaiah. Wish God's restoration on them. Notice in 2 Chronicles, Manasseh becomes a restorer himself. He conducted civil works. He, he built up the city wall and the country defenses. He beefed up the military. But most ironic of all, Manasseh becomes a restorer of true worship. Being restored leads to broader restoration. Another member of my pulpit team, Martin McDonald, reminded me, he wrote me and said, this blessed the entire nation and his grandson Josiah, about whom we will study, carried on Manasseh's good work toward restoration. Awesome. What is the Lord's response to the contrite person? Look at verse 13. God is a restorer and secondly, God is revealed to Manasseh. That's what's meant by the verb to know. Okay, Manasseh was granted a relationship with the Almighty. To know God is to have intimate, experiential knowledge of Him. Dr. Vines summarized it really well. Many, many years ago, he wrote this. He said, in addition to the essentially cognitive knowing, this verb has a purely experiential side. The knower has actual involvement with or in the object of the knowing. The emphasis is the intimate and personal. Do you know God? 
Have you let him reveal himself to you? Listen, however great your sin, however tight the straits in which you are pressed, God longs to make himself known to you. God so desired a knowing relationship with you that Jesus came to earth. God the Son died on a cross to pay for your sin. He communicated with you through his word when you were still a cruel rebel. He loved you when you were unlovable. And now he calls you to know him. He calls you into a relationship with him. We've got, we've got a tiny section left to cover, but let's just stop and pray about this, can we? Let's pray with me right now. Father, I pray for anybody who's studying with me that doesn't know you through Jesus. I pray that you draw them right now. Friend, listen. God loves you so much that he gives you this two-fingered blessing. He reaches out for you with God the Son, fully God, fully human, who died on the cross because, the other hand, is showing the truth of your sin. You are separated from God, and you cannot earn your way to him. You're a sinner, and God's holy. But Jesus paid the price for your sin so you could receive the blessing, and it comes through faith. It begins way back in the book of Genesis. The Bible tells us all the way through. Salvation is by God's grace through faith. You trust that Messiah right now. Jesus paid for your sin and then he rose from the dead showing that he conquered death and sin and so that everyone who trusts him can follow him in everlasting life. Trust him right now. Believe in Jesus. If you just trusted Jesus as Savior, please raise your hand. Everybody else is still praying. I want to rejoice. Good for you. Amen. Father, I pray for these new and old believers in Jesus. And I thank you that we are adopted as children of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Listen, if you trust in the Messiah, you're adopted as a child of God. The New Testament is very clear about that. Manasseh heard Isaiah's prophecy about the Messiah. And I believe that Manasseh became a son of God through faith. One thing that makes me certain that God adopted Manasseh is our third R, and that is that the Lord has Manasseh face responsibility. Manasseh is held responsible. That, that's a sign of familyhood. You see, Hebrews 12 makes it clear that whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. He chastises his own family. God loves Manasseh enough to make him see his responsibility for the mess that worship has become. The, look at verse 17. That nasty syncretized religion of verse 17, that is directly Manasseh's fault. As George Hillman taught recently, all of the, the mixing of God and horoscopes, nastiness, all that had been done away with by Manasseh's father, Hezekiah. But now, even as changed Manasseh calls for godly worship, he observes the consequence of his own sin, bringing all that junk back. There are consequences on earth for sin. Being a restored believer to whom God is revealed does not mean there is no responsibility. It's quite the opposite, in fact. For example, just think about it like this. Unless you're a jerk, you don't make a real big deal about it when your lawn service misses a little strip of grass in your yard. You know, they, they miss a little strip of grass. I mean, you, you, you either just ignore it and don't worry about it, or you, or you get another company, right? But what if that strip is missed by your son, whom you're trying to teach and train, whom you want to have know what it means to do a good job? What do you do then? Oh, you go outside then. And you're like, hey, hey, right here. Come here. You missed a spot. Oh, Dad. You want him you want him to do excellence unto the Lord because he's your son. Friends, whatever your crimes, 
However Manasseh-esque your cruelty, God's grace through your faith in Jesus' sacrifice, it earns you a place at this table. This is the Lord's table. Do you know what this is? The three R's. This is a place of restoration. This is also a place of revelation. God has made himself known through Jesus who is represented in these elements. And this is a place of responsibility. Look at what God's word says about the Lord's table. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Responsibility. Pray with me, please. Let's pray. Lord, guide us to examine ourselves. Right now, Father, expose where we are self-righteous, where we are relying on our poor excuse for holiness instead of your perfect provision. Father, it is never too late to repent and turn to you. There is no sin too big for you to forgive. There is no sinner too bad for you to restore. With my brethren, I thank you for this moment to reflect on our sins. I thank you for all that you provide for restoration and revelation and, yes, for responsibility. Lord, we confess our sins as we reconnect with you.